in the Annunciation, what we mainly have is we have this the promise that the Messiah has come, the time is fulfilled, it's going to happen. And then we have this Greek word, episkiazo, if you want to hear it, Matt, <laughs> um, the overshadowing. So we have this, this idea planted, or there's just this quick this connection. The glory cloud, the Holy Spirit, the cloud left the temple. Ezekiel saw it happen. The cloud of God's glory has been gone now for 500 years. No one has seen it. And suddenly now, is this, this, this hint, this connection? The cloud of God's glory, the Holy Spirit, is going to overshadow this young woman, Mary, in the same way that it overshadowed the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. And so someone hearing that could say, okay, well, you got a little something, but you don't have a lot. All right, that's why I want to move forward, because it doesn't stop there. Welcome to another X Marks the Spot episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. And for a limited time only, Kenny, I assure you, we have top men working <laughs> on these episodes. Top men. And those top men are my colleague Ken Hensley, who was a former Baptist pastor. My colleague Kenny Burchard, who was a Foursquare pastor and church planner. I'm Matt Swaim, and I was neither of those things, but uh, I have some Wesleyanism in my background. And I'm just glad that you're all here with us. You can check us out at the Coming Home Network by simply going to chnetwork.org. That's chnetwork.org for all kinds of free resources, including all hundred and some previous episodes of On the Journey. And if you're looking for a community of people to discuss questions about the Catholic faith, and some of them are theological, some of them are just personal, uh, feel free to come visit us in our community. That's community.chnetwork.org. If you want to support our work so that this can always be free for people who want to watch it, then go to chnetwork.org slash compass. Ken and Kenny, how are you? Doing great. Uh, yeah, I'm doing so fine. I, I'm wearing glasses today. You know, I, I think my eyes are going bad. And I uh, and I think or, or either that or like the connection between my eyes and my brain is going bad. Or maybe my brain's going bad or maybe the world's just becoming foggy and my eyes are perfect. I don't know what, but I feel like I need to wear glasses I know why you need to wear glasses, Ken. It's because why? I've reviewed the notes for today, and you have enormous amounts of research and material for today's yes. discussion. I don't think people realize uh, how many say... things there are uh, to talk about in regard to today's topic. It's uh, the question of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. And yeah. I, before you launch into this, I just want to preface it by saying that this concept of Mary as Ark of the Covenant was the thing that unlocked everything for me in regard everything. to the question of Mary. I mean, it really did. I was studying yeah. and doing all my, you know, proof texting yeah. and research and everything. Once I understood what you're about to explain today, it unlocked everything for me. So I'm excited. Well, that's good to hear. That's great. That's great to hear. Okay. You know, I thought you were going to say that having read my material, you found an enormous number of typos in it. And that's why you knew I needed glasses. No, I okay. didn't find them because I wasn't wearing glasses, but you know, 
you might. Okay, but but there is a lot of material. Now, I don't know if there's more material than there was last week when Kenny worked his way through Mary as the New Eve, but there there's a lot of material. And I, I want to begin this week where I began last week. In my Protestant, my, my formerly nicotine-stained, you know, Protestant shoes, okay? As a Protestant, I approach questions of Christian truth looking essentially at the Bible alone, sola scriptura. As for Mary, I would have looked up all the passages that have the word Mary in them. I would have read them. I would have kind of added them together and made my conclusion as to what the Bible teaches about Mary. Well, as a Catholic, I approach questions of Christian truth in a very different manner. Um, because now I approach them with the words of Dei Verbum, the, uh, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from Vatican II, ringing in my ears at all times. Um, th this passage in particular, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, tradition, scripture, and the magisterium, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together, each in its own way, under the action of the Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. And so to put it as, as Kenny has put it, now as a Catholic, I read scripture and I want to read scripture as deeply as I can, but I read it along with the church. I, I don't read it just like a Martian, you know, who just f runs into a text and starts reading it. I read it with the sacred tradition of the church in mind and with the magisterium of the church in mind. Okay. Last week, Kenny led us through a study of biblical theology, of the biblical theology of woman, and it was, it was very good, really rich. And using the technique of biblical typology or understanding the understanding of biblical typology, he talked about what led the early Christians from the beginning, it seems, to think of Mary as the new Eve. And I, 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 here's my summary just quickly of the new Eve. The first woman, Eve, is visited by a fallen angel, the devil. She says yes to the devil, and the rest is history. The new Eve is visited by a, a glorious holy angel, Gabriel. She says yes to the message of, of, of Gabriel from God. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. And the rest is history. The first Eve became the mother of a fallen human race in Adam, the second Eve, the new Eve, became the mother of a new humanity in righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now, typology, okay? None of this proves, I, 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 I want to state this several times, and I will, none of this proves that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin or lived, lived a sinless life. But I think as we're going to see next week in particular, very early on, from the beginning, it seems, we find the church expressing its belief that as the new Eve, it was fitting that God create her as the first Eve had been created. Using the words of Ephesians 5, Matt, which you brought into the discussion last week, without spot or wrinkle. Now, it wasn't just the early church either, because all the way until the time of the Reformation, in fact, up to the time of the Reformation, in fact, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, we find Martin Luther, the, uh, the primary reformer, really. We find him writing in his personal prayer book these words, Mary is full of grace, proclaimed 
to be entirely without sin. Wow, Martin Luther said this, okay? Mary is full of grace, proclaimed to be entirely without sin. God's grace fills her with everything good and makes her devoid of all evil. God is with her, meaning all she did or left undone is divine and the action of God in her. Moreover, God protected her from all that might be hurtful to her. An amazing statement. Anyway, Kenny, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything that you would want to add to what I've said about your message last week before we move on? Yeah, I think just to connect to what you're saying here, Ken, what we're doing, you know, for the sake of the folks watching, uh, is we are doing biblical theology primarily using the tool of typology. And we're, this is not peculiar to Catholic biblical interpreters, like, oh, Catholics are off, you know, to the side doing this. This is integral to watching the church do theology as early as the writers of the New Testament. That, that is to say that when you start having literature come out of the apostles, the disciples of, of Jesus and their disciples, when they write in the New Testament, they are often using this tool of typology to help followers of Jesus understand God's actions uh, in history by using this this concept of typology. And so it isn't just Catholic um, biblical interpreters who do this. I just want to read real quickly a little article on, or an excerpt from an article on typology from the Erdman's Bible Dictionary, Matt and Ken. It says that typology is a relationship in which something occurring in the past is a copy or a pattern of something in the present or future. And then toward the end of this article, it says persons, events, or things in the Old Testament while possessing true historical validity in themselves. So, for instance, Eve, we're saying she's got a true, valid history within herself, also function as divinely appointed illustrations of what is yet to come. And that's what I was saying last week when connecting Mary to Eve and Eve to Mary, that this is an exercise in typology, which we see as a tool that the New Testament writers are even using to interpret the Old Testament. For instance, where Peter says, uh, Noah's Ark prefigures baptism. And that word right, prefigures right. is antitupos, a, a, a pre-type, tupos, not typos, but tupos. Uh, he uses that word to say that this previous thing is actually pointing toward a future thing the ark pre-typing baptism. And Luke uses this uh, in Acts. Paul uses it in the letters. Peter uses it in his letters. The writer of Hebrews uses a lot, uses it a lot, and says that he's doing as much, that these are things that were in the Old Testament to show us um, what's to come in the New. And so a key to understanding how the New Testament and the Old Testament work together is through typology, and the church picks up on this because of what they find in the Bible and continues to do theology in this way. And so, Ken, when you now grab this other image from the Old Testament and connect it to Mary, this is a great example of this long, solid tradition of using biblical typology as New Testament Christians to interpret the Old Testament and show how God is moving the story forward through history. 
Yeah, and as you get ready to launch into this, Ken, I just want to say, uh, to add on to this, not only is the stuff you're about to say going to help make more sense of who Mary is in the Ark of Salvation history, it's also probably going to help make a lot more sense of what the Ark of the Covenant is and what it's about. Because, to be honest, there are a lot of us who know that it's in there, who have seen Indiana Jones, who have heard the stories in the Old Testament and thought, you know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he did all these things and all these moral lessons happen. Also, there's this weird gold box that's apparently present in a bunch of these stories, and it's apparently, mm-hmm. we're not exactly <laughs> sure what the, why it's such a big deal, but mm-hmm. we just know that it is, and we don't have it anymore, and it's maybe in a warehouse somewhere under the Pentagon. I'm not sure. This helps us also make a lot more sense of what the Ark of the Covenant was about in the first place. So, I say launch in, man. Okay. Well, I hope I don't go like a steamroller here, but I do have quite a bit to say. Um, Let me begin with this too. When I first heard Mary described by Catholics as the Ark of the New Covenant, and even given that title, Mary, Ark of the New Covenant, it was like uh, the feeling that I had was like the feeling I had when I first heard Catholics call Mary the mother of God. It just sounded so totally preposterous. Uh, You know, the thought that came to my mind was, there go the Catholics again. I mean, will the Catholics stop at nothing to elevate this woman, you know, blessed by God, fine, but just a regular woman, to the status almost of divinity? That's the thought that I had. Okay, but then I heard the case for thinking of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant, and I listened to some debates between Protestant apologists and Catholic apologists in which on Mary, in which this whole issue was outlined, and I would listen to the case for it, and I found myself thinking, wow, this case is pretty good, (laughs) you know, this is pretty good. But then I would listen to the Protestant apologist just poo-poo it and laugh it off, and make make out as though the Catholics were just simply reading this into the text of the Bible, that this is that this is mere imagination, you know, and and so I really got into studying this and thinking about it. But like you said, Matt, that this opened a door for you. I think it opened a door for me in the sense that catching the Protestant apologist poo-pooing something that seemed to me to have some real credence was kind of opening my eyes too to how our eyes can be closed to things if we're not really open, you know, to just reading what's there. So anyway, what is the biblical case for thinking of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Well, to begin, what was the Ark of the Old Covenant? We need to begin there. And I'm going to begin by reading a bit from Exodus chapter 25, beginning at verse 8, where we read about the Ark for the first time. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so that you shall make it. So you shall make it. And you shall make an Ark of acacia wood, You shall overlay it with pure gold. Within and without, you shall overlay it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you of all that I will give you in commandment 
for the people of Israel. Okay, this is taken from the description that Moses is giving, or that God is giving Moses for the building of the tabernacle. And very quickly, I just want you to notice seven things about the tabernacle and this Ark of the Covenant. First, notice that the tabernacle is designed to function as God's dwelling place on earth. Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I, that I may dwell in their midst. As many have commented before, the tabernacle appears to have, have been designed to function as a kind of portable sanctuary as the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and crossing the wilderness into the land of promise. Okay, notice second, the Ark of the Covenant is the first item of sacred furniture that Moses was instructed to have designed and made for the tabernacle. Verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, and then immediately they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Third, notice that the ark is to be made of incorruptible wood. This, in fact, is how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually translated the word acacia. is a very strong, very hard wood. So the ark is made of incorruptible wood. Notice fourth that the ark is to be covered with pure gold inside and out. In fact, verse 11 says, you shall overlay it with pure gold within and without, you shall overlay it. Even the poles that were used to carry the ark as the Israelites moved through the wilderness were to be covered with pure gold, emphasizing the sacredness, the holiness, the purity of this item. Fifth, notice that the ark is to contain God's word. Verse 16 says, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Notice sixth, that this is where God promised to meet with his people. Verse 22, there, that is above the ark of the, of the covenant, above the mercy seat with the two cherubim facing inward, there I will meet with you. I will speak with all of you. I will speak with you of all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And then finally, number seven, Notice that it was when the tabernacle had been built and the furnishings completed and the ark actually placed within the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle, it's then that the cloud of God's glory came down and filled the tabernacle. Reading now from Exodus chapter 40. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and he screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses so Moses finished the work, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud abode upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay. Yeah. Yes? So, I would encourage anybody who uh, wants to really blow their own mind at the end of this episode, just rewind to what Ken just said and hear it all again, <laughs> because <laughs> there's a lot in there. Yeah. Uh, and there's some stuff that you didn't even have time to dwell in. Like, you know, think about even the fact that this is sort of an odd thing uh, that God is commanding in light of some other things that God has commanded, like don't make a graven image, right? Because here he's also asked yeah. them to make it uh, cherubim and put them on top. Which there's only one other thing that God ever makes, uh, tells people to make uh, an image of that's a living thing, and that's uh, the serpents in the desert, the seraph serpents, right? Snakes. I don't know. Why did it have to be snakes? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. But isn't it interesting that um, there are a whole bunch of 
very curious things. I mean, God doesn't ask us to do anything or doesn't ask his people to mm-hmm. do anything just arbitrarily. This is loaded with symbolism. Yeah, and the, and the reason I wanted to go through it in detail like that is, is just to, to emphasize the specialness of the Ark of the Covenant. Because there were other items in the tabernacle that are made of acacia wood, not just the ark. There are other items that are covered in pure gold. There is the table of of the the bread of the presence. There was the candlestick that was made of pure gold as well. And yet the ark is special. And we know this because the cloud of God's glory overshadows the ark and fills the temple. Also, the ark contains the word of God. It contains a copy of the testimony. That's what Moses says here. In fact, later on, we learn, you know, we can't read all these things, but later on, we learn that within the ark was also placed some of the miracle bread, the bread from heaven, the manna that God had given his people to nourish them uh, during their journey to the promised land. And also within the ark was placed Aaron's branch that budded or Aaron's rod that budded, a symbol of Aaron's high priestly authority. So the ark is special, incorruptible wood covered in gold. No one can carry the ark except the priests. No one can even look at the ark. When they moved the ark, they had to cover it in blue cloth and it had to be carried by the priests only. No one could see the ark at all except the high priest who once a year on the day of atonement would go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies to present sacrifice. In fact, anyone else who looks into the ark, and we we find this later on in the Bible, dies Anyone else who attempts to touch the ark dies. So we're talking about something very, very special. But let's move on uh, through the history a bit. Because in the Old Testament narrative of Israel's history, recorded in the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, we continue to hear about the ark. In Joshua, we read about the ark uh, carried by the priests, leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. We also read about the ark carried again by the priests, leading the children of Israel into battle with their enemies. Remember the story of the ark going around the walls of Jericho seven times, and then the trumpets blow and everyone shouts and the walls fall down. The The, the ark of the covenant symbolizes God's glory. It is the place of God's glory and presence with his people, but it also symbolizes the power of God working with his people and through his people. When we come to the book of Samuel, we read about David finally conquering Jerusalem and bringing the ark to reside there. In 1 Kings, David's son Solomon builds the glorious temple for God that David wanted to build but was not allowed to. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, When the ark is placed within the Holy of Holies, we read that it's at that point that the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. And I want to read this too, because it's so beautiful from 1 Kings chapter 8. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon. This is at the great dedication. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, as you, you gentlemen know this, but as you read the narrative of Israel's history, there's this uphill narrative, and this really is the high point 
Um, this is the golden era of King Solomon, the dedication of the temple, God's glory coming and filling the temple when they placed the Ark of the Covenant there. After this, you know, I'm not going to stop here and read all of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, but it's downhill. The story is downhill. The people of Israel fall into sin. They fall into apostasy. And interestingly, it's during the same time, that is the downhill slope morally of God's people, that the Ark of the Covenant begins to fade from the narrative. So much so, in fact, that when the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, finally conquered Jerusalem and sacked the temple. This occurred in 587 BC. There's a list given of the items that the Babylonians took from the temple to take back to Babylon. And interestingly, the Ark is not mentioned. You, you would think the Ark would be the number one item listed, but, but it's not listed. It's not a part of the list. It's not mentioned. And then some 50 years later, when some of the, the stragglers, really, the Jews, are being allowed by the great Persian king Cyrus the Great to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple under Ezra, again, there's no, mark, uh, there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant's missing. And we can go forward another 500 years when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC. This is where the Roman domination of of Israel begins. The historian Tacitus tells us that when Pompey went into the temple, he found that, quote, the place was empty and the secret shrine contained nothing, which creates an interesting little, uh, you know, historic question. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is at the forefront of of Israel's narrative going into the land, conquering the land, leading up to David and Solomon and the great glorious temple that he built. What happened to the ark? And there has been a ton of speculation regarding this. Um, you may know, maybe you saw a documentary about uh, how there's a Coptic church in Egypt that claims that they have the Ark of the Covenant even to this day, but they won't allow anybody to see it. And, uh, you know, there are other, in fact, Matt, you kind of threw me off early on today uh, because you mentioned something about Indiana Jones and the movie. Uh, okay. I'm terribly sorry. I saw, well, you threw me off because I saw this back in the 80s and I thought it was a documentary. I thought. Oh, it, the, it the was Indiana a, Jones was a documentary? Yeah, I, I thought it was about an archaeologist and some Nazis during World War II that were, that found the, they actually found the Ark. I thought it was a documentary. You're saying it wasn't? Well, it starts off actually surprisingly faithful to all the things that you just said, um, including some of uh, Indiana Jones explaining <clears throat> the history of some of the the captures mm -hmm. of of the Ark and such, and you know they show the picture and <clears throat> Major Eaton says, you know, what's that coming out of the Ark? And uh, Indiana Jones says, lightning, fire, the power of God, or something, right? And uh, you're the only one that you, would know his name, Eaton, right? Well, I know it's Major Eaton because he yeah. also played Porkins, the first X-Wing fighter pilot to die on the first <laughs> Death Star trench run in A New Hope. Go back and watch it. If you think I'm lying, that Matt, same did guy. you know that that... That's the, did, that's did the you same know that guy, that by the film? way. What's that? Uh, go ahead, finish. I was, I was asking Matt if he knew that that, that that was a film and not a documentary. But, but go so, ahead. One other point about this is... is uh, 
I remember this because it's one of uh, it, it's the the basis for one of the greatest lines in the entire Indiana Jones series, where uh, Doctor Jones is explaining to Major Eaton what's inside the Ark, uh, you know, the commandments of God, and Major mm-hmm. Eaton says like the Ten Commandments. He said yes, the, the real Ten Commandments that you know they were brought down. Moses smashed the first mm-hmm. copy. He got the second copy. Mm-hmm. Those were in the Ark, and then he turns around and says to them, "You guys ever go to Sunday school?" <laughs> I think it's sort of the it's one of the great ones. But Kenny, Kenny, did you think it was a documentary? I mean, let's be honest. Indiana Jones was fairly spot on, at least at this part, before it went off the rails later in the movie. I I didn't know anything. I wasn't even a Christian when that movie came out, so I had no I had no basis uh, for understanding anything. It was just all a mixed up, muddled world to me. So you you guys are way ahead of where I well, was. Right. I do have a question though for you at, at this point, Kenny. Did you have like you're a guy who's preaching Old and New Testament as a Pentecostal. Did you have like a place in your mind for where this Ark of the Covenant stuff was all supposed to fit? Or was it just some interesting thing from the Old Testament at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really didn't have a place for the Ark of the the Covenant at all. Even though I knew, because I was teaching, you know, teaching through the Bible, teaching through the New Testament, even though I knew that the New Testament authors were saying things like, well, what we find in the Old Testament are types. For instance, Paul says that, you know, in, in uh, Romans 5.14, he says, um, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Or, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, now these things are warnings uh, to us, but that word warnings is actually tupoi, types. These things are types. So I could see that language in the New Testament, but because it wasn't, especially early on, part of the way that I did theology, like like good Catholics and even like the people in the Bible, some things were harder for me to find or to know how to draw out the typology that was intrinsic to the text until I started listening to um, early Christian writers and Catholic biblical interpreters who were carrying out carrying out that pr- tradition, and then like you, Matt, um, I it's like lights started coming on, and I thought, wow, this is whole strand of theological engagement with the Bible that, that I've just missed. So well, and it also again helped make me it helped me make sense of a whole bunch of stuff in the Old Testament that didn't make sense before, including a bunch of stuff that Ken's about to talk about that just yes. seems like just crazy, weird, old-school Old Testament language. It doesn't matter anymore. Jesus came, and we don't have to worry about it. But right. if it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason, so right. it must be it must be important. So I guess that's where we jump back in, yeah. Ken. I perceive that thou art a prophet. How do you know what I'm going to talk about? <laughs> anyway, anyway, Matt. Anyway, Matt. Okay, okay. So, where did the Ark of the Covenant go? Um, if it's not in a warehouse somewhere beneath the Pentagon, as as that documentary claimed, and uh, where is it? Well, actually, as a Catholic, we don't have to speculate entirely. There is more information. Well, there's more information from a Protestant perspective, but also from a Catholic perspective, because. The prophet Ezekiel, first of all, Ezekiel tells us that before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC, as God's judgment on his people, Ezekiel tells us that the cloud of God's glory that had filled the temple from the time of Solomon, had filled the tabernacle before that, that it got up and left, that the cloud of God's glory left. 
In fact, Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel chapter 11, the prophet describes how in a vision he actually watched the cloud of God's glory move from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple and then move out into the distance and finally disappear. You know, as uh, Don McLean said, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost caught the last train for the coast the day the music died, something like that. He actually watched God's glory leave the temple before the Babylonians came in. And then in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, this is where as a Catholic we are looking at information that Protestants wouldn't accept. In 2 Maccabees 2, we're given more information. We're told that after the cloud of glory left the temple, but before the Babylonians uh, came in and got their hands on the ark, we're told that the prophet Jeremiah took the ark away and hid it in a cave on Mount Nebo. Now, this is something maybe a lot of people listening have just never heard before, but let me read the section from 2 Maccabees chapter 2 that talks about this. It was also in the writing of that prophet, or that the prophet, that is Jeremiah, having received an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow with him, and that he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up and had seen the inheritance of God, as Mount Nebo where Moses died. And Jeremiah came and found a cave, and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense, so several items from the tabernacle, and he sealed up the entrance in the cave. Some of those who followed him came up to the mark, came up to mark the way, but could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and he declared, this is important, the place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. So when we leave the Old Testament, we've got this wonderful story of the Ark of the Covenant and what it meant and what it contained and its disappearance and this promise that a day is going to come when God gathers his people together. And of course, it's talking about the, the, the new covenant, the future. And during that time, God will show his mercy to his people and the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. Okay, so the big this question for this entire... This is where, as a Catholic <laughs> heard how this ends, I have to like hold my tongue so much because, my goodness, it's amazing so how mouth. much you see in retrospect. I'm telling you, so up, at the end, you should go back yeah. and rewatch some of this once Ken gets to the punchline. Uh, it's so like watching a, one of those, like like a Christopher Nolan movie where you figure out like what happened, and then you're like, wait, they had been hinting yeah, at this, at this all point, along, now I gotta go back and watch it. So Because at this point, the obvious question is, what in the world does any of this have to do with Mary? <laughs> I mean, we've right. been talking for... We've been talking for a half an hour about the Ark of the Covenant. What does this have to do with Mary, the mother of Jesus? Um, and as a Protestant, I might have said, hey, look, I've read the New Testament, and the New Testament doesn't make any connection whatsoever between the Ark of the Covenant and Mary. Well, again, at this point, I ask those listening, watching, put yourself into the shoes now of a first century Jew living in the land of Israel. For more than 500 years now, the Ark of the Covenant has been missing. And with it, the, the cloud of God's presence with his people has been gone, has been missing. Think about it. God's people, the, Israel, the, the Jews, have been living under the domination of foreign powers. Oh, man, the Syrians, the Greeks, the Romans. 
you as a Jew living at this time, you've been traveling up to Jerusalem three times a year for the sacred feast to offer sacrifices in the temple, a temple where the Holy of Holies is empty. There's nothing in it. The ark is not there. And you and everyone around you, all the Jews are just so, it's just so obvious the ark is not here and neither is the cloud of God's glory. The temple is a building now and they come and they bring their sacrifices. You've been waiting for the day when God would show his mercy, as Maccabees said, and the cloud of glory would return. And then imagine suddenly you're handed a copy of Luke's gospel, okay? Someone named Luke has written a book you begin to read it, and suddenly you're reading about the angel Gabriel, and you're reading about the angel Gabriel appearing to a young woman named Mary and announcing that she will be the mother of the Messiah, the long-awaited son of Abraham, son of David, the Messiah. He will be great. You're reading the text from Luke. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So again, Matt, Kenny, your mind begins to race. What? What? The Messiah is going to be born? And, and the announcement comes from Gabriel? The last time the angel Gabriel made an appearance is way back during the Babylonian exile when Gabriel appears to Daniel, the prophet, to inform him that it's going to be about 500 years from then, uh, 70 weeks of seven, right? Remember the, the prophecy, of the, the great prophecy of the 70 weeks. It's going to be about 490. It's going to be about 500 years from now before God acts to save his people, before the Messiah comes, before righteousness is restored. And now Gabriel appears on the scene. So your mind is just racing. And then when you read Mary's response to Gabriel, how can this be? Since I do not know man, the angel explains, the Holy Spirit, Mary, will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Greek word translated overshadow here is exactly the same Greek word that appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint of Exodus 40, verse 35, to speak of the cloud of God's glory overshadowing the tabernacle. So again, I'm reading, I'm reading Luke. I hear about Mary. Gabriel is there. I hear about the Messiah. And I hear how the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow this woman so that the child born to her will be the Son of God. Even Protestant scholars, here's one of them, John Noland, has written in his commentary on Luke these words, Mary's experience is to be compared with the dramatic way in which God's glory and the cloud marking his presence came down upon the completed tabernacle. So you've got that. So here's where I'm wondering, Kenny, you were the sure. guy who's always dropping Greek on us here in these episodes and, uh, you know, your prolegomenons and your uh, typos <laughs> and typos and tapas. Uh, did you did you ever see this? Tapas. I mean, because you would have probably preached on the incarnation a couple of times. I mean, did you see this connection between that word overshadow uh, used over Mary? That's the same word as it's used in the Greek translation of Exodus 40. I mean, or is it just it didn't you didn't think to you look know, or did I, you think to look or? 
Well, I, I would say two things here. I would say I wouldn't have gone, quote-unquote, gone looking for this uh, myself, which I think is a Catholic reflex because I think it's a biblical reflex because, and it's a historical interpretive reflex to go about looking for things like this. Doesn't it seem to be that way? <laughs> like the writers of the New Testament yeah. themselves seem to be trying to find these kinds of, of connections and even inserting them into their their own writings. But I did not have a reflex for that. I have an intrinsic reflex for that. So it wouldn't, it didn't feel natural for me to do it. And if I had seen someone try to do it, for instance, like the, uh, like John Nolan, who you just, uh, quoted, Ken, I would have had another reflex, which would have been, oh, 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 don't, don't do too much there, Mr. Nolan, or else you'll have pe people investigating Catholicism. Like I, I would have had kind of an anti-Catholic reflex to that um, that connection that he makes between Mary and the Ark. Um, so in a sense, I had, I had to let down my guard and realize that my reflexes were not formed by, um, you know, kind of a, a true, um, shall I say, uh, approach that was coherent to what the biblical authors themselves... You didn't look at it were, the same way you looked at all the other Bible pieces. Even, I mean, it's the same kind of, it's an approach I, I that you would have taken almost everywhere except for there, you know? I, I think I, I think I really worked hard to find Jesus in the Old Testament, um, uh, which, which is great. And I, and I still do that to this day. But to try to find the whole matrix of the biblical story and how the people fit that matrix, how Mary fits in, Jesus, you know, uh, the, the 12 and the 12 of the Old Testament and the New, it, it it has taken me some time to to develop those muscles, you know, those Catholic okay. muscles um, okay, to now, do this kind of work. Yeah, and okay, and let me let let me put forward this because okay, this is just the Annunciation, and what we've seen right. here really. Oh, the Annunciation is mainly, isn't the one that does it for me. It's what you're about to do next that unlocked okay. everything. So, what am I going to do next? How do you know? Just, Again, okay, listen. Um. In the Annunciation, what we mainly have is we have this the promise that the Messiah has come, the time is fulfilled, it's going to happen. And then we have this Greek word, episkiazo, if you want to hear it, Matt, <laughs> um, the overshadowing. So we have this, this idea planted, or there's just this quick this connection. The glory cloud, the Holy Spirit, the cloud left the temple, Ezekiel saw it happen. The cloud of God's glory has been gone now for 500 years. No one has seen it. And suddenly now, is this, this this hint, this connection? The cloud of God's glory, the Holy Spirit, is going to overshadow this young woman, Mary, in the same way that it overshadowed the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. And so someone hearing that could say, okay, well, you got a little something, but you don't have a lot. All right, that's why I want to move forward, because it doesn't stop there. Because immediately after telling the story of the Annunciation to Mary— Luke relates how Mary traveled right away from Nazareth to Jerusalem to visit her cousin, what we refer to as the visitation. Okay, and here's the key. In the way that Luke designs his narrative of the visitation, I think it is unquestionable, it is beyond question that he is patterning, he is patterning Mary's visit to Elizabeth after the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Okay, 
That's the statement. So let, let me first read the passage from Luke quickly. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord through Gabriel. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and on with the rest of that. Okay, so what am I talking about? This is where I have to become very, very specific. Long story short, though, the background, just very quickly. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, we have the story of how the Philistines in battle with the Israelites captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it home with them, put it into the temple of their god Dagon. Every morning when they got up, the god Dagon had fallen over, his head was broken off. God caused them all kinds of trouble. God cursed the Philistines in some very embarrassing ways. Well, leave it at that. And they decided to send the ark back. I can say this, just one thing, that if um, Preparation H had been around in those days, I think it would have found a good market among the uh, Philistines, all right? God cursed them. They decide to send the Ark of the Covenant back where it came from, and they are sending it along. Some of the men of Beth Shemesh decide to look into the Ark at that time, and they are struck dead. It winds up in the town of Kiriath-Jerim, where it remains for some time. Okay, many years later now, David has become king. David has taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He decides he wants to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have the narrative of him doing this. Now, let me repeat again. What I'm saying is this. When, when Luke's narrative of Mary's trip to visit Elizabeth, when it is read in the light of this narrative in 2 Samuel 6, David going to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to Jerusalem, I, I believe the parallels cannot be written off as mere coincidence. They cannot be. Luke is presenting Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Okay, now listen to the parallels as I just sort of whip them off. And I'm reversing the order. I want to, I want to look at the second Samuel first and then, and then the Luke to make sense of this. Listen to these parallels, though. In 2 Samuel 6, 2, we read how, quote, David arose and went to bring up the Ark of God. In Luke 1.39, we read that Mary arose and went into the hill country of Judea to visit Elizabeth. Okay? Doesn't sound like much. But we move on. In 2 Samuel 6, verses 15 and 16, we read that as the men were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, David was leaping before the Lord with all his might, and the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. Okay? They're bringing the ark back. David, wearing a linen ephod, is leaping before the ark with joy, and everyone is shouting. In Luke 1, 41 and 42, we read how the infant John leaps in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice, and Elizabeth cries out, quote, with a loud voice, unquote. Two parallels there. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 9, David admits his unworthiness to receive the ark, 
David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, in Luke 1, verse 43, Elizabeth admits her unworthiness to receive Mary. Quote, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's the same thing. The parallel is beautiful. In 2 Samuel 6, 11, we read that the ark remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, bringing blessing to his house. And in Luke 1, 56, we read, which seems like such a little incidental point, that Mary remained in Elizabeth's house for three months. Now, I've heard, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I've so have you gentlemen, I've heard these parallels presented in a number of debates. And I've watched the Protestant in the debate blow all of this off as mere coincidence or yeah, it's, it's not even, it's just mere coincidence. You're just reading this into the passage. There's no connection whatsoever. But the parallels here are too numerous and they're too exact. They're too exact. Luke ha clearly has patterned his narrative, I would say, of the visitation. He's patterned it after the narrative of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And, and Luke's thinking, Mary is the ark. And then, punchline here, and th then I want to hear your reaction. I do. When you add to this what we saw about the Annunciation, that Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, exactly like the cloud overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. Then she moves in this visitation to visit Elizabeth, and all of these parallels occur. When you add to this the Annunciation, and then when you add these parallels, the fact that as Mary travels to visit Elizabeth, what is she carrying within her womb? She's carrying the Word of God made flesh. Remember how the Ark of the Covenant contained a copy of the Word of God? She's carrying the true bread from heaven, the bread of life. Remember how the Ark of the Covenant carried a sample of the manna, the bread that God gave his people from heaven? And she's carrying within her womb the true high priest, who as priest and victim will offer his life a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just like Mary in her womb had this little blossoming uh, branch symbolizing Aaron's high priestly authority. When you add those elements to episkiazo, I'm looking at you, Kenny, you, you lover of the Greek words, and you add that to all of these parallels in the story of the visitation, I think it's unavoidable. Mary is being presented here by Luke as the Ark of the New Covenant. And Ken, what I would say there, amen, I want to stand up and cheer um, because because you're right. And I would say to anybody watching who may, let's say you have some theological training and you've got some background in biblical languages. Maybe you, you've toyed around with the relationship between the Septuagint and, and, the, and the New Testament because you have both accessible to you in the Greek language. That not only do you have typology functioning here, but you have, you have, to use another nerdy term, you have intertextuality, where you have phrases and words and combinations of words, let's say literally, everybody loves that word, literally lifted from the Septuagint and imported by Luke into his narrative at the Annunciation, so that you have not only breadcrumbs, but whole loaves of bread <laughs> dropped in front of you so that you can tell 
that what Luke is doing is being a biblical theologian. He's using the language of the old and bringing it forth into the new. He is em, em, um, employing this in, incredible tool of typology and intertextuality to say, look what God is fulfilling, filling up to the full, filling up. Uh, that was the shadow before, but that is now the substantive reality embodied in a human being here in the New Testament. It's really beautiful, really amazing. Thanks it's, for that. That's great. There's Man, there's layers and layers. When I say that this unlocked everything, um, I'll try not to spoil m- much, but it, it really did unlock everything. Uh, I mean, think about something like the perpetual virginity of Mary. Would Joseph and Mary have gone on to had a normal uh, kind of married relationship in you know the the consumative way if joseph was aware at all of this concept of mary as the ark of the covenant uh and knowing what was the case with the ark of the covenant had to be carried on poles and people who touched it irreverently got you know golden hemorrhoids or they didn't get hold i mean that was the uh that was the antidote uh was the they made the tumors out of gold but you know you, you see like if joseph is thinking this at all even remotely joseph who's also gotten messages from angels by the way um, or, or even just the question at the beginning when you were going through, what's the ark made out of? It's made out of acacia wood, which is an incorruptible wood. We're going to talk more about uh, Mary's assumption later on, but it it helps kind of lay a, a little piece of something yeah. in your mind just about how are we thinking about the ark? How are we thinking about Mary? Or even something like when God comes to dwell among his people, right? He, he comes and this is this... This is the piece of furniture that he uses, right? right. When he is, uh, you know, with his people in the tent. And how many millions of images over the years do we have of Mary with baby Jesus sitting on her lap, right? This is the piece of furniture that baby Jesus uses as he comes to meet his people. I mean, they're just, it's just unlocks everything. Okay, look, and... I thank you for that. And no, you, you didn't spoil anything. That added beautifully to what we're looking at here. And um, I want to bring this around, though, uh, and mention one more passage that Kenny brought up last week, Revelation chapter 12, where we read John's vision of this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of seven star, or 12 stars on her head. I think that it's more than interesting that when we read this passage, if we read the verse immediately preceding this verse that Kenny read last week, this is what we get. And I'm going to leave it at this because we're going to be coming back to this passage when we talk about Mary's bodily assumption, and I don't want to go on with it. But if we read the verse immediately preceding the verse about the woman and the stars on her head, this is what we get. Then the temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Here we have the Ark of the Covenant and the woman in the space of two verses. And again, like I said, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything more because we're going to be coming back to this passage uh, two weeks from now. But in conclusion... I just want to make this point, which I, I which I made before. We're not dealing with geometry here. Uh, we're not dealing with you know theorems. We're not dealing with mathematical proofs. We're not dealing with proofs that Mary was immaculately conceived or that she lived a pure or sinless life. And yet, 
as we deal with biblical theology and we deal with this typology and we allow these images to sink into our souls and our minds, somehow it doesn't seem strange to me anymore to hear St. Athanasius in the fourth century say something like this. This is St. Athanasius. O noble virgin, truly you are greater than any other greatness, for who is your equal in greatness? O dwelling place of God the Word, clothed with purity instead of gold, you are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is, the flesh in which divinity resides. You carry within you the feet, the head, the entire body of the perfect God. You are God's place of repose. And before laughing this off as pious nonsense, as I know that some do and some will, recall or keep in mind the fact that this same Athanasius, St. Athanasius, he was the first to set forth the exact list of 27 books that we now have in our New Testaments, okay? It's the same guy. He was the first to set forth the exact list of 27 books that we now have in our New Testaments. The same Athanasius was the great champion of the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council of Christian history in 325 AD, where Arianism was defeated and where it was proclaimed that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. That is this same Athanasius that we're talking about, okay? And while these images of Mary then that we've looked at, the new Eve last week, Mary is the Ark of the Covenant this week, they, I will say once again, they, they do not demonstrate in some ma- mathematical sense Um, They don't prove in some mathematical sense the Catholic teaching about Mary's purity, Mary's sinlessness. Somehow, it does not seem strange when you take all this into account to find the catechism of the Catholic Church summarizing like this, Mary, in whom the Lord himself has just made his dwelling, is the daughter of Zion in person, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the glory of the Lord dwells. She is the dwelling of God with men, full of grace, full of grace. Mary is wholly given over to him who has come to dwell in her and whom she is about to give to the world. Now, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how these ideas percolating within the soul of the church through the centuries um, led the church in time to dogmatically define that Mary was indeed the Immaculate Conception. I'll leave it at that. If you have any closing words, Kenny or Matt, I, I do. I I just want to say as as a word of encouragement to those who are listening and 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 Matt and Ken that what we're doing here is really important, and it's how the Church does theology. And I just read a quote here, a really quick quote from Scott Hahn's uh, dictionary on um, uh, his Catholic dictionary where he talks about typology and does it, it helps to give an insight into exactly what you just spent all that time doing, Ken. He says, I'm quoting now, the movement from types to the realities uh, they signify called antitypes is always a movement from the lesser to the greater. Hear that. The typology, you're always moving from the lesser to the greater. So there, there's kind of, there, there's that, those breadcrumbs again saying, how can you guys, how can you Catholics or how can you 
biblical thinkers throughout the ages of the church go and grab the Ark of the Covenant, stick Mary to that, and say that that's somehow uh, an indicator that she, or that, that, that Mary and Eve go together, and that somehow that uh, indicates her immaculate conception, her sinlessness. And it's because of this, this insight that Scott Hahn pro- provides that the movement in typology is from the lesser to the greater. So if Eve is created by God as an act of grace without the stain of original sin, Mary, who is the fulfillment, is not going to be less than Eve. And if Eve, or if the, the tabernacle is this holy vessel, this golden, holy, pure vessel that's going to hold Aaron's budding branch and the manna and the law inside of it and be in the most holy place where God himself meets his people between the wings of the cherubim, you know, then that's the lesser than the greater, the fulfillment of that biblical type is going to be greater in in who and what it or she is than that original. And so all of this together creates the theological stuff, you know, the ingredients out of which the church in its thinking over time develops uh, these theological conclusions. Yeah. I have two things. Oh, go ahead. You Kate. can see, well, I, I just want to say, you can see that that's the way Athanasius is, is thinking. That's the, the kind of conclusion he's drawing, but go ahead, Matt. Hey, I was just going to say two things. First, uh, as I saw, especially that uh, sequence that you went through with the visitation and just how evidential it was, never mind the one from the Annunciation, never mind the one we're going to get to in more depth with Revelation. I noticed that there were there was a difference between that visitation example and something like the words of Athanasius, between that and what I had been experiencing when I was researching some things when I was getting into the rapture stuff as a teenage kid in the 90s. The rapture stuff, I was finding these were new interpretations that sort of hung on a thread that someone had just discovered that had never really been seen by anybody before. And we didn't have a lot to go on, but for some reason they had like some significant interpretive power. The difference between that and what you just did, A, there's a whole lot more threads that tie it together in the scriptural narrative. There's a whole lot more links between the New and the Old Testament in that question. And it's an interpretation that Christians were using from the beginning of time. This is a very, this is not something that you and me and Kenny woke up one day and discovered and are like, hey guys, I found something that no Christians have seen before. This is like, this is the family history. So the second thing I will say is that I'm disappointed. I only got in about a half a dozen of the Indiana Jones, like subtle references that I meant to get in, in the course of this episode. (laughs) There's always next week, Matt. There's always next week. (laughs) There's always next week. But the, so the ones that I didn't get to were, um, let's see the quote from short round. I'm very little. You cheat very big. I was hoping to sneak that one in. Also, uh, it belongs in a museum. Didn't get to that one. And I didn't get to Sala. I said, no camels. That's five camels. Can't you count? But now they're in there. They're in the record. They're on the record. Gentlemen. Well, I'm just sad to realize that it's not, it wasn't a documentary. But anyway, we'll see you next week. We will indeed. And uh, we'll see you, by the way, uh, anytime if you head on to our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. We're always in there engaging these kinds of questions and talking to people about all kinds of stuff, theology, 
uh, how their family is handling the fact that they're researching this stuff. Uh, whatever it happens to be, come see us. Uh, go find lots of older episodes of On the Journey by going to chnetwork.org. And of course, if you want to support our work, you can always head over and make a donation either one time or uh, monthly. Be a monthly supporter. chnetwork.org slash compass. Ken Hensley, Ken Bouchard, thank you so much. Have a great day. See you next week. Bye, guys. See you next time. 